Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a fairly um, ancient saying that I know all of y'all are aware of. Uh, Birds of a feather flock together. Well, uh, that's easier said other done. Even in a church, there's massive differences in age, uh, with different ethnicities, different cultures. Uh, I think enough said, but um, point is, we may flock together, but can we can we stay together, remain together? And the Bible over and over again tells us that we must even despite our radical differences of backgrounds and ages and cultures. And we must because there's one Lord, one faith, and only one body. Just one body. Uh, and Paul begins to address this issue in uh, church at Rome uh, because uh, it was one church, but there were two totally distinct and radically different uh, ethnic groups that were coming together, uh, namely Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Uh, Paul here dif differentiates them uh, with the words uh, weak and strong, meaning that there's a tension between the two. And the phrase weak and strong is really a pejorative marker because you're acknowledging that there's a massive difference. One party is strong, another party is weak. We could uh, use the synonyms mature and immature. And it's, it's just as apt as 
strong and weak, but it's also just as pejorative. Now, why is that? Well, let me stop and think about the Jewish culture um, steeped in Old Testament law. Uh, the vestiges of the ceremonial law has uh, continued. You don't just set that aside after hundreds of years of practicing the ceremonial law. Uh, and now Christ has come and fulfilled it. Very difficult uh, to set aside uh, some of the dietary laws, uh, set aside uh, particular days of worship. Uh, on the other hand, the Gentiles, they uh, praise God that uh, they don't have to obey the ceremonial law. They can set it aside easily because they were never under it. Uh, so the point is that there was a struggle within the church uh, and there's always a struggle in the church. There's making there's a Grace Bible Church or somewhere else. Always battles being uh, fought. Uh, I think about texts like this uh, that Paul not only addresses here. You read the book of Corinthians. It's addressed there on and on. Two cultures that come together and clash. Or two age groups or uh, ethnicities or cultural backgrounds. So how do we resolve this tension? Uh, Paul's going to attempt to do that. Verses 1 to 3, he says we're to accept one another based upon God's acceptance of us. And that's really a, a critical marker. We don't accept one another based on age groups and um, some people know what grits are and others don't. We accept one another based upon the work of Christ. Uh, and there's really no status in the church. Simply the work of Christ. Uh, part of the difficulty is uh, the issue of idolatry. Uh, in uh, culture at large, certainly in the city of Rome, the uh, vast majority of the meat you could buy had been dedicated to the worship and service of uh, idols. And uh, therefore was a it's incredible tension for a Jew because of their deep uh, regard uh, for rejecting idolatry. They just had a real difficult time uh, going and uh, buying top sirloin that had been dedicated to some Roman god. Uh, and, and of course, in those days, a Caesar was a god. Gentiles could have cared less because they knew that there's, there's no idols. There's just simply one god. By the way, that's a marker in our age of differences, isn't there? It's only one God. Every other religion is false. There's only one Lord. Every other religious book is false. There's only one Word of God. And maybe that causes some of you to bristle. But it's just the way that it is, and that's what Paul is teaching them. Uh, the Scriptures tell us that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. So... If you want to abstain from meat that's been offered to an idol, you can. It's your freedom of conscience. If you wish to enjoy a good T-bone, you know, Paul would say something like, have at it, as long as you can accept it in your conscience. Um, obviously, the tension is uh, some of the parties, uh, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, were despising one another. 
and uh, Paul gives Paul gives an imperative. He says, "Don't don't despise. Furthermore, don't judge one another." What's the reason? Because God has accepted both parties. Why? Because one is better than the other? No, because of Christ and His work. The only standard is the gospel. Outside of that, everyone is rejected. But in the gospel, God accepts us all in light of ethnicities or cultural backgrounds, on and on. So that our unity in the church is simply based upon one imperative, one only, and that is Christ. Uh, and the implicit reality is, is that Christ has set us free and we can live accordingly. It's very interesting when you, when you think about uh, what Paul is saying about accepting one another. Think about our culture. We don't, if we don't like someone or what someone says, what do we do? Well, we unfriend them, we dox them. I mean, I love this terminology, even though I think it's incredibly uh, harmful and dangerous. Cancel culture. Or by our socks, I just don't like your ideas. I'm just going to cancel you. Uh, it's not only you, I'll cancel any of your relatives. On and on. It's incredible. But the church, church is different because uh, we have one Savior. Uh, that's the world system. In the church, we... Uh, have to learn uh, to love one another and leave aside judging one another, uh, holding someone in contempt. Uh, in verses 4 to 9, we're to be accepting of one another based upon uh, the lordship of Christ and his prerogative. Uh, Paul here begins uh, with a rhetorical question uh, namely, who are you to judge? Uh, we know from the context here that uh, some in the church were uh, judging house servants uh, as a way to get at the master. I mean, that's the kind of pettiness that sometimes people uh, retreat to. Uh, and it's the master of the house that set the cultural environment of, uh, of his servants. Uh, and the illustration points to the reality that uh, it's the approval of the Lord of heaven, not someone else that's important. Uh, I would uh, certainly speak to our, uh, our young adults. Sometimes we crave uh, the approval of perhaps uh, uh, some clique at uh, school or whatever the case might be. And again, that's a difficult road to go down. Uh, I, would, I would encourage you to be very careful of doing that. Uh, there's really only one approval that you should seek, and that is the Lord of glory in heaven, namely our Savior. If you go down the opposite, you're very likely to get in trouble. Uh, because that's just simply the way that life works. Uh, if Satan can use your friends to ruin you, he will gladly do that. And so, uh, why we uh, need to have friends, I certainly appreciate and understand that, but we belong to the Lord. It's His approval that we seek. 
uh, and it's the entire efficiency and efficacy of his solitary perfections that is all that really matters. Uh, there's a distinction that some in the church were, again, certainly the uh, Jewish Christians were continuing to follow uh, certain days and religious calendars from their past. Uh, Paul says that's fine, but if you're going to do that, do it to the Lord uh, and not just to a calendar. So again, Christian liberty comes into play here. Uh, I would remind you the issue of liberty is that if the Bible does not regulate your behavior, you're free to participate in it uh, as long as you can do it in the freedom of your conscience. Bible doesn't uh, uh, forbid uh, eating a good porterhouse, regardless of uh, whether it was used in some religious ceremony or not. So if you want to do it, go right ahead. If you can't do it in the freedom of your conscience, Paul would say, well, don't do it. Uh, but again, it's the regulative principle of Scripture. So, And the more decisive reality is the Lordship of Christ. He's the Lord of every day. He's the Lord of the food that we eat. He is the Lord of all of our activities. And if we can't do something to the Lord, then we ought, ought not to do it. Uh, it's the point that uh, we're not our own. We belong to Him. If you're a Christian, we belong to Him. Uh, Paul here says we, uh, we live and die for the Lord. Uh, verse 8. I think the reference here to uh, life and death is a merism. And Paul really means everything in between. Between these two extremes, everything that we do belongs to Him. Uh, there's no private enclave that we can retreat to and say, this belongs to me. No, everything belongs to Him. And therefore, His Lordship over every aspect of our lives is total and absolute. Just simply in terms of Reformed theology, the majesty of the supremacy of God. He is the one supreme. He owns everything. And He simply makes us stewards over the property that's in our names or the activities that we engage in. And if we can't engage in certain activities uh, out of freedom of conscience to the glory of the Lord, then we ought to be careful. So Paul is walking, a, if you will, a line between the Jewish Christians who really need to mature and wise up and understand that the decisive reality is that Jesus Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. Every aspect of it pointed to his coming and to his death and resurrection. Now that that most dramatic of all events in history has occurred, we don't need to follow the ceremonial law. Uh, he's also warning the Gentile Christians to be very careful about judging of the immature in the church, giving them some room. Why is that? Because there's only one Lord, and judging is a prerogative that belongs to the Lord. 
Now, I understand, certainly, young adults, we go to school, we judge people based on, I don't know, the label of their clothes or the statue of their parents or whatever the case might be, but, I mean, that's, that is extreme immaturity. Uh, we should understand that there's one Lord and judging is a prerogative that belongs to Him alone. So, it's a reminder that we should accept one another based upon uh, the fact that God accepted us. He didn't accept us based upon our ethnicities, our cultural background, whatever else it is that we sometimes judge one another. He accepts us solely and entirely based upon the good pleasure of His will. And we should be very careful of judging one another because of the Lordship of Christ. Now there's a third reality here that is perhaps uh, the most decisive of all. It's in verses 10 to 12. We're to be accepting of one another in light of the end time judgment in which uh, God will judge all things. Bring everything under judgment for both Christians and non-Christians. And so the context of judging and treating one another with contempt is uh, raised again in a rhetorical form. Uh, we, Paul is saying simply don't, don't do these things. Uh, and the stated reason is, as I've suggested, the end time judgment. Uh, for those of you that are Christians in our congregation, most of you, I'm sure, have a personal faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope. You're trusting in His salvation alone uh, because you know you have no good works that you can bring before the Lord of glory. He does not accept you based on your works because your works are of no count whatsoever to Him. Uh, your works as a fallen man or woman or boy or girl or young or old do not avail anything to Him. There's only one work that avails before the Lord of glory, and that is the work of Christ. Uh, and Christians who have their hope in that, and that alone, sometimes, well, I'm not going to face the end time judgment. Oh, but you are. Just like the lost are going to stand before the Lord of glory in the end time judgment, so are Christians. And all of us will give account. The point for the Roman church is you're going to give account if you're holding the immature, or conversely, the mature, in disdain and contempt. Paul is saying you're going to give an account for that at the end time judgment, therefore maybe you should let it go. Now the good news for the Christian is that we're going to go to the end time judgment in our resurrected bodies, justified because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, we're going to appear before the judgment seat. Let's turn, because this is such an important context, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, in verse 10. Uh, because this is, I think, a profound regulative behavior 
teaching us humility, uh, be accepting of one another because God has accepted us solely and entirely based upon his son. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The good news is, is that you and I, who've been justified by God, uh, come before him in our glorified bodies, vindicated based upon what? The work of Christ alone. Uh, very quick summary, Romans chapter chapters 4 and 5. Uh, the sin of Adam was imputed to all of us. All of us were guilty because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Those of us who believe in him, God the Father imputed the righteousness of his Son to our account so that we can stand before God the Father and even before the end time judgment. We all appear before it. We appear glorified and vindicated and justified. By the way, if you're not a Christian, it's a compelling reason to ponder the claims of Christ. That there is only forgiveness in Him. That there is, hear the word of Luke, no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. If you're seeking it in anyone else other than Christ, uh, you will be condemned forever and ever. If you are trusting in your good works to get you into the presence of heaven, you will be condemned forever and ever. The only name which will avail is the name of Jesus Christ. So the good news is that uh, we will be vindicated because we've already been justified. But it is a compelling check upon pride uh, when we judge one another that we usurp the sole and entire prerogative of the Lord of glory. And we are playing fast and loose with the reality that we will give an account before God in the end time judgment. Paul here uh, repairs or turns to the Old Testament to get them to understand the gravity of what they're doing. By application, think of our culture. What in the world was the church in the South doing prior to the Civil War? Or for that matter, after the Civil War? Or for that matter, into the 50s and 60s and 70s? Because we have forgotten these incredible principles. Uh, God makes all men. They belong to him. He creates them as he wills and imparts to them their identity as he wills. So it's a check on being very careful about usurping what is divine prerogative. And that prerogative is he's going to bring everything under judgment. Those who play fast and loose with the silliness of gender fluidity. Really? 
God creates your biology and gives you your chromosomes that identify you, and you're going to play with his identity? Well, play all you want. You'll give an account to God. Uh, so as Christians, we should walk humbly. Uh, we should be very careful, but there is a Lord who will judge all things in the end time judgment. And Paul quotes uh, to cement that fact, uh, Isaiah chapter 45 in verse 23. If you want to turn uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45, uh, verse 23. That to me, second half of the verse, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. The context of Isaiah 45 is God summons uh, Gentiles to hear that He alone saves and that all men are accountable to Him. All men, all women, young and old, irrespective of their tribe and tongue and people and nation. They will give an account to the Lord of glory. But notice notice the text, to me, to me. Not to our petty judgments in the life of the church. So every knee will bow in submission and every tongue will confess, either in faith or in force or voluntarily or involuntarily, will bow before the Lord of glory. It's an acknowledgement that we must be careful about our conduct in the church because we will give an account. And we're to promote unity and edification even in the midst of incredible diversity. Sooners, cowboys, hunters, fishermen, People that stay at home, incredible diversity. But one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And how much more critical for uh, this day, the life of our church, in which we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table. Because our Savior died for all men without distinction. He didn't die for all men but he died for all men without distinction, irrespective of their cultures or their backgrounds or their ethnicities or their hobbies or their educations or their titles, all men without distinction. And therefore, you and I are to love all men without distinction, irrespective of their status in our culture. And because he makes us one, we're to live as one. And that's what Paul is telling the Roman church, where two cultures are clashing. One mature, one immature. Simply love one another. Uh, it's important, I think, to grasp that principle when we come to the sacrament of the Lord's table, because it's here we commune with Christ. And what enables us to commune with Him other than His sovereign grace that He purchased all men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, irrespective of any of those things that we sometimes make dividing lines in our culture. If He died and purchased 
men without distinction, women without distinction, we should be accepting, kind and gracious. The table invokes the concept of host and hospitality. Uh, this is the table of the Lord. He is the host. He is hospitable to all men and women, irrespective of age and backgrounds and titles. As long as they know Him by personal faith in Jesus Christ. Background of the Lord's table, as you know, is the Passover meal. But Christ fulfills the Passover meal. He is the Passover lamb. He ends that ceremony and institutes the sacrament of the Lord's table. Passover the lamb in that the wrath of God fell upon him so that those who believe in him will escape it forever and ever. Not based upon anything within them or about them, but solely based upon the sovereign grace and the good pleasure of His will. It's important to recognize in the Lord's table that there is a visible sign, bread and wine, or bread and grape juice. But it's what is signified by the sign, namely our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace, understanding of the majesty of the grace of our Savior who purchased us that we can forever escape wrath. As you know, in the institution of the Lord's table, the Apostle enjoins us to examine ourselves. What does that mean? Quoting the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 97, what is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Answer, is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon Him, of their repentance and love and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Part of the background of that is uh, church in Corinth, is uh, the wealthy people were hogging all the food, uh, some of them were getting drunk on the wine. So Paul is to correct that. The greater application for us is that we come uh, knowing that we're forgiven for all of our sins. And so if uh, you can come in that way, then you should come. But if you're a professing Christian and um, you are engaging in some known sin, for which you are unrepentant and continue to live in that aspect of rebellion, you really should not partake. You should pass the elements by. Uh, because you're receiving the sacrament unworthily. All of us are guilty of unknown sins. Simply we are still ignorant. But if there's something you're engaging in a known violation of God's Word, and again, no one's watching. No one's taking notes. I say no one. God is watching. And He is the Lord of the heart. And for sure, no one around you may know, but He knows. And so it's a reminder that all of us are desperately dependent upon the grace of God and forgiveness. Uh, that we all come uh, marred because of the past and some of us engaging in 
uh, sins, but we simply unknown to us. Sometimes we are guilty of pride and vanity. Uh, maybe we spoke an unkind word to someone and just simply didn't register to us what we were doing. All of us are guilty of those things, but we, we come uh, forgiven. And as we pass the elements, uh, if you need to confess something before the Lord, then you have an occasion to do that. Uh, it is the recognition that we do not, in any manner whatsoever, come perfect. We come imperfect. He is the only perfect one. And in His grace, He has granted the perfections of His righteousness to be charged to our account. So we have peace with God forever and ever. There's a warrant for this, of course, uh, in the Scriptures. uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. I'm going to read verses uh, 23 to 29. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you, Do this in remembrance of me. Think about His grace and mercy. You think the Lord knew that Peter was going to betray Him? Absolutely. He knows all things. Uh, He knew it from eternity past that Peter would betray Him. What an act of the pure majesty of the grace and mercy of our Savior that He's going to serve Peter. Uh, Beyond Peter, I'm not trying to pick upon him, well, when the Roman soldiers came, they, what, what, what did they all do? They simply fled. Our Savior is so gracious, so merciful. He is feeding them, reminding them of the forgiveness which is entirely and solely in Him. In the same way, The cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'd remind you that Grace Bible Church, this is an open communion. By open communion, I mean to say, if you're here as a visitor for the first time uh, and you profess Faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, this table is open to you. This is not the table of Grace Bible Church or my table. It's the Lord's table. If He is your Savior, then commune with Him and fellowship with Him. Uh, Speaking of the bread, Belgic Confession says, for the support of the spiritual and heavenly life, which believers have, He has sent them a living bread which came down out of heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and sustains the spiritual life of the believers when He is eaten by them. That is spiritually appropriated and received by faith. What is signified by that? Not the sign. We're going to eat some unleavened bread together. What is signified It's the daily constant provision of our Savior to nourish us, to remind us of His provision, to bless us, to enrich us, and to cause us to revel in the joy, the forgiveness of all of our sins. 
and to remember in fellowship that it was due to Him and Him alone. That we were unworthy, but He makes us worthy. A gracious Redeemer. As we, uh, as we uh, pass the bread, I do remind you that our Savior uh, was broken for us upon the cross. That the wrath of the Heavenly Father was vented against Him. Uh, someone had to pay for sin, our sin. And the only one qualified to do so was the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was vented and spent upon Him that we might go free and be forgiven. And that we might relish the beauty and the majesty of that simple, most beautiful of all words of all time, forgiven in Christ. So when the bread is uh, broken, think of Him paying your debt, curing your liability. Hold the bread until which time we are all served, and then we will eat together. Uh, as a testimony of what the Roman church uh, is to learn from Romans chapter 14, namely that there is one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one bread. And that Christ is the only Redeemer of God's elect. And we owe Him everything for forgiving us. So let's prepare our hearts for the partaking of the bread and the fellowshipping with the provision of our Savior to nourish us spiritually in all of the vagaries of this present life. Our Father, we thank Thee for the bread of heaven, for our forgiveness, for the grace that feeds us and nourishes us throughout our lives. And that every day we can feed upon the blessings of His mercy. And for this particular day, we are reminded in a special way that the head of the table comes to remind us of His goodness. Uh, bless us individually and corporately as we partake to signify that we belong to Him. And make us full that we might go away strengthened all the more to live for Him in His blessed kingdom until He comes for us to receive us into glory. And these saints we pray in His name. Amen. I would remind you in the uh, service of uh, the cup that in the middle of the service there is wine uh, periphery, there is uh, grape juice that each may partake in the freedom of their own traditions and conscience. Uh, but more importantly, that Christ testifies to us that certainly as we take and hold the sacrament in our hand and eat it and drink it in our mouths, by which our physical life is unsustained, so certainly we receive by faith as the hand and mouth of the soul, the body and the blood of Christ, our only Savior, and our souls for spiritual life. Uh, I'd remind you that uh, our Lord um, drank the cup of judgment that we deserve to drink because we were certainly guilty uh, for the sin of our forefather Adam and for our own personal sin. Entirely guilty. 
without any excuse whatsoever. And that cup of judgment was given uh, to our Redeemer to drink upon the cross. And He drank it to the most bitter dregs. And the cruelty of the cross uh, to satisfy wrath and then give to us the cup of the new covenant. And so we're here to remember not just that He drank the cup of judgment, but that we can drink now the cup of joy and fellowship and communion and relish in all of the benefits of the new covenant that we've been born again and that we can walk uh, by faith and not by sight and trust Him every day until He comes for us. Uh, again, as I, uh, as I pass the cup, I ask you to hold it until which time all are served, and then we will manifest uh, symbolically the unity of the church and drink as one. So let's prepare our hearts to receive the cup. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the cup of joy. Because our Savior drank the cup of judgment, we drink the cup of new life enjoy and forgiveness most majestic of all words in light of our guilt and wickedness because of Christ we are forgiven and not just forgiven forgiven forever and bless us as we partake and may we shine as lights in this evil world and so testify that we belong body and soul to our great redeemer and having partaken, we announce that Christ is our life, and we acknowledge that one day He will come again to receive us unto Himself. Come quickly. And may the sanctifying grace of His spiritual presence enable us to wait faithfully for Him. In whose name we pray, Amen.